0: or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.LeadLagReport.com. Use promo code Podcast30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Gayed.
1: My name is Michael Gayat, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is a man who knows a little bit about finding value, Mr. Andrew Hose. Andrew, for those who are not familiar with your background and maybe who don't follow you on YouTube, and I encourage people to do so, uh, introduce yourself. Who are you? How did you get involved and interested in markets and what's your analytical approach?
2: Yeah, so uh, my name's Andy Hosey and I have an engineering background. I went to school out in California at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and I kind of just got involved with investing as I was at my job, kind of thinking, you know, I'm just not making enough money, kind of looking around, seeing other people. And I got really interested in investing and having money work for you instead of you working for money. So I dug into investing ever since I started working. I'd say that was back in 2004. And I saw the tail end of that last commodity bull market. And that's what got me really Excited and interested in investing was that commodity bull market. And I don't know why why it is, but I've always been interested in commodities. Maybe because of the returns that can happen in such a short period. But um, that's really what drew me to investing was the money working for you, not wanting to uh, strain too hard myself, working for money, and then seeing that last commodity bull market got me really interested in commodities. And then in between, obviously, we had a disinflationary period for the real estate cycle and stock regular stocks were uh good investments during that period, but commodities are back they're back with a bang and that's uh that's really what I'd like to talk about and Were you trading or playing with commodities
1: throughout that sort of period of you know kind of nothingness for the for the asset class? What were you doing in that in that in between those two endpoints?
2: yeah so I'll just start off with the business cycle and and real estate cycle It's the same thing the business cycle is the real estate cycle. And you get these big cycles that go up and down over time. They're about 18 years in length. And during that length, you've got certain asset classes that are preferable to invest in. So on the real estate cycle, I'll just go over real quick. You've got four cycles or four phases. In the cycle, the four phases are a recession, which everything kind of collapses. You go into a recovery phase, an expansion phase, a hyper supply phase and then you go back into that recession, and it repeats over and over. It's about 18 years for the total cycle in length. Now, in a, in a recovery phase, that's where you have low inflation and you have low interest rates. So the interest rates crashed from the recession, they're low, and they try to reflate everything. During that time frame, that's generally when tech stocks and other S&P 500 stocks do very well. So it's a low inflation, low interest rate environment. When the housing market tightens up over that period, that period usually lasts anywhere from four to 11 years, somewhere in that range. The housing market tightens up. You get a new expansionary phase of real estate. We start building more and more new homes and new loans go against those new homes. You see a credit expansion phase during that cycle. You see inflation and that inflation comes into the system increasing interest rates. So interest rates are going to chase that inflation into the system because inflation puts everything into a real negative rate. Interest rates come on up and money starts to rotate differently. It rotates away from tech, technology companies. It rotates away from regular S&P 500 companies and it rotates into commodities, precious metals, and those types of investments. So that's kind of the big cycle there. And, and eventually, you'll get into a hyper supply phase where they build too many homes. You get into a huge housing glut and you'll start to see the housing starts roll over, the credit and that credit expansion starts to cease to exist. It rolls over as well. And eventually, if there's bad loans in the system, you'll start to see foreclosures, you'll start to see delinquencies on payments and all of that stuff comes in and you'll see a collapse in the markets. And it's generally driven by the housing market, the big kind of blowout crashes. So think of the Great Depression. Think of 1980s. Think of all of those 2008. They're all housing market crashes for the most part. You'll see the housing starts to basically collapse. You'll start to see the foreclosures. The foreclosures destroy credit. And that's your kind of deleveraging destruction of credit phase. So in that cycle, you've got preferable investments. On the recession crashing phase, you want to be in bonds, you want to be in those types of investments there. In the recovery phase, it's technology stocks, tech tech, and regular S&P 500 stocks. And during the expansionary phase, which I think we are still in, that is where commodities and precious metals really take off. So that's kind of the big kind of phase of where you want to be, at least in, in my opinion, for investments and what do well during that cycle by the way you just articulated exactly why i'm uh to some people obsessed with lumber yes
1: because of their link to housing agreed 100 percent. yep that is right okay now now i i think we can we can agree that so I'm with you I, i'm always making a point that there's no gurus only cycles that you have to you know, it's ultimately about the cycle that you're in when you're running certain strategies that are either rules-based or by perspectives obviously you got to stick to that approach you can't chase the cycle the cycle kind of has to come to you if your specialty is commodities you got to wait for the cycle to really favor the asset class in general how do you evaluate what's happened the last 3 4 years in terms of cycle work because you can i think make a very clear argument that all kinds of cycles got thrown off with covid and the response to it
2: yeah yeah 100% and that's what makes this cycle really difficult and i think it's throwing a lot of people off what happened obviously everybody knows with with covid they basically stopped the economy. Oil went negative. We had all sorts of ridiculous things happen during that time frame. We had a stop in production of a lot of different things. And then we also threw in it this, this gigantic soup of things that are going on. They threw a bunch of stimulus money in it. So it supercharged certain assets when they came back online. And I think it threw off a lot of perhaps signals that people watch. So we went into an expansionary phase in 2019, 2018, 2019. We were kind of coming up above the... So what an expansionary phase is, you've got the, the average long-term home demand. It's like 1.3 million, 1.4 million, somewhere in that range per year of new houses being built of demand. Once you exceed that, you start to go into an expansion phase. And that's kind of where you get an above average... Inflation from the system because credit is coming into the system at a faster pace than we'll say gross domestic product, and it's at a faster pace than kind of average, so to speak. So, we had this slowdown stop, we were in that expansionary phase, and the reason you saw home prices run up so much is because we were in that expansionary phase. The demand is there from the millennials coming into home buying years, and we also have a shortage in the market. Let's just call it three to six million, there's, you can look at a bunch of different information. It's somewhere in that range, three to six million homes short in the market. And when we had those interest rates, they did crazy stuff here. They, they pumped the system with money and then they did QE to hold interest rates down. And that's why housing market went ballistic. The conditions were there for people wanting to buy homes. And guess what happened? People bought homes. It jacked that price way up. It also threw a bunch of our indicators off where you look at, say, lumber, you look at some of these things where they stopped, and then all of a sudden, there's this gigantic surge in demand. So obviously, prices spiked afterwards or went up quite dramatically. So that's lumber, oil, natural gas, doesn't matter what it is. They all went up quite aggressively. So now I think everything's trying to stabilize. And interest rates, they chase inflation, in my opinion, more or less. The bond market just does whatever inflation does. So if inflation is greater than your interest rate, they're going to sell bonds until you get some sort of acceptable return in the bond market. So what kind of happened is we had all of this inflation come into the system, stimulus money and all those loans that people were buying for homes and all that stuff. And it raised that interest rate to perhaps a level that might not be sustainable from an affordability standpoint on a long-term perspective. So I think some things may have to cool off a little bit in the short term, but it's difficult because it throws all your signals off of what you might be looking at. So lumber spiked and it came back down. Oil spiked and it's coming back down a little bit. And I think the whole market just needs to digest all these moves and figure out where an acceptable interest rate level is that is more sustainable. So, so I think that, you know, if, if you're looking at the, the cycle and you were to say, you know, is this cycle at the end of the cycle or do we, are we still in the middle of an expansionary phase of real estate? The question I would ask everyone would be, if you were to lower interest rates today and you were to cut it in half, what do you think the housing market would do? If the housing market would just skyrocket back up or start to really firm up, then you know the demand is there. It's just an affordability problem. And we're waiting basically for that inflation to kind of work its way through the system. And then the interest rate come back to more of a sustainable level. If this is an end of tight, you know, an end of expansionary phase move, you would see a ton of supply come onto the market. You'd have inventories busting at the seams. You'd start to see delinquencies and foreclosures come on. And I just don't see any of that happening yet. I think we're kind of early. So I think there's more time left in this expansionary phase of real estate. That's my take on it. And I think a lot of the other people who are, you know, there's a lot of housing bears out there. I just think that it's an affordability issue at this time, and it's not necessarily a hyper supply phase. So that's that's my so the, my take on it.
1: Yeah, no, so this is actually this is interesting. So uh, it's like I was just have this conversation with Charles Tassels in the audience here like an hour ago. So back in like February, March, I was very adamant publicly saying your house, your house is about to be worth less. Mm-hmm. And people thought I was saying worthless, right? But, but I'm saying worthless. And I was saying that because I could see lumber was starting to go down. And obviously, yeah, you, know, you were starting to see the after effects of of all the insanity around uh, the buying just kind of cooling. And I'm with you on the the supply side of things. I think there's another interesting dynamic which complicates the, the Uber bear argument on housing and real estate, which is that – it's like, why did you have a baby boom? Because there's nothing like death to remind people to live. Mm-hmm. Right. And a part of my own thesis coming out of COVID, even my own thinking around inflation was that because everyone was reminded at the time that you might get COVID, you might die next week. That is more than just sort of the idea of pent up demand. It was the feeling that you might as well spend now, you might as well get the bigger homes, who cares about the cost because you may not be able to make it to tomorrow. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I think part of a discussion around cycles also relates to almost like these generational moments of a a sentiment shift around how to view one's own lifespan in the context of what they're spending on today.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Right.
1: As a construct. So it it is intriguing. Now, just we're going to be talking about a lot of different commodities here. And again, anybody wants to come up and ask questions, (laughs) feel free. It is interesting to me. So lumber's limit up today. Last I checked and, after severe, severe weakness, it looks like you're starting to see some interesting movement and it's coinciding with long duration, 30-year mortgage yields being lower than they were at the peak last year. And yeah, you know, maybe there's just too much bearishness. Um, you mentioned this idea that you don't think the cycle's over, that there's still some more room on the expansion side. Yeah. Do, do, do you suspect that this is more of a counter rally to an extreme bearish view and that no matter what? housing still will have trouble over the next two three years or has nothing really changed on the secular bull thesis for housing
2: we'll be back after a quick break hello listeners
1: michael Gaia here from lead lag live are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends risk management and investment strategies then you need the lead lag report our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before and guess what We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash Live and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion.
2: So the way that I would view where we are at today, uh, I kind of view it as like a 2000-2001 time frame. So it's it's similar to that time frame, it's not exactly the same, but um, I'll I'll just kind of maybe go back. We can look backwards to look forwards. So in the 1970s, we had a demographic that was larger coming into home buying years called the baby boomers. They came in and they actually created the 1970s, in my opinion. We had a massive housing market bull cycle in the 1970s. That demographic dipped in the middle of that demographic in the 19 mid 1970s. So think of people who are 30 years old coming in and buying homes uh, around that age group, that demographic comes in, it puts the housing market into a shortage, and then you have to build more new homes. There, it also puts them, those people into a larger, we'll call it, they spend more during those, those times of their, their lives as well. So it's, it's not just the credit coming into the system. It's also, their spending money as well. So in the 1970s, we had the baby boomers come into home buying years from 1970 to 1980, pushing that housing market uh, into an expansionary phase, a very large expansionary phase, where credit came flooding into the system. Now, what, when credit comes flooding into the system, that is inflation. And inflation basically puts your GDP, so you've got the M2 money supply growing at a faster pace than your GDP. So it puts everything into a shortage. And the things that are most sensitive or most well-used, I'll say the things that are used the most commodity-wise, like oil, which is the number one commodity, is the most inflation-sensitive. So when this credit comes in and they go, whoever it is, goes and buys products, it's either used by commodities or or energy is used to build those products. So it's commodities that are used to build the products and also energy. So we put it into a shortage. That's where you'll start to see the most sensitive commodities start to take off, oil and whatever else. So if we look today, the baby boomers had kids known as the millennials or Gen X, and that millennial population is larger. And what we wanna see, if you're looking for an inflationary cycle is you wanna see a step change in your demographics. And that demographic of the millennials is a step change. It comes into home buying years and it basically shocks the housing market. And that housing market has to catch back up through home builds. So those home builds uh, and that credit expansion is really what the Federal Reserve is fighting right now. The question that you kind of have to ask yourself now is, what is Act Two of the Federal Reserve? What can they do? If they raise rates and kind of hold the housing market down from an affordability standpoint, what's their second move? Are they just going to keep it up here and just try to hold it and squeeze the whole system? From an affordability standpoint or are they going to slowly lower, rate, lower rates where some people can afford more new homes which would be inf- a little bit more inflationary or do they kind of crush the inflation raise it to a level where they just crush it all and then all of a sudden they're like okay inflation's gone they lower the interest rate back down but all those people are still there ready to buy which means inflation will come back in another way so I, I think in the short term I think the affordability is the thing that's stopping it, but I can't tell you when they're going to reverse course because in the beginning of all this, what they said using their words is that we're not even thinking about raising rates. And I'm like, okay, so they're not going to think about raising rates till 2024 or 2023. But here we are in 2023 and they raised a whole bunch of, you know, whole bunch of times and had rates move a lot higher. So I'm not exactly sure what they're going to do. What they're going to try. But I can say this they're in a weird situation right now where I think they're kind of pinned into a corner. They can't really lower rates too much if they want to stop inflation, because I just described kind of the situation that they're in from the housing market and the demographic coming into home buying years and the affordability that interest rates are going to allow these people to buy more homes, which means credit expansion. But if they keep the interest rates too high, I think rolling over debt of their own, you know, the, the government rolling over their debt and the bond releases and all that stuff. You're also going to have inflation because they're going to have to print money to cover all of that, which is the interest payments. You also have baby boomers that are coming into, we'll call it social security years, Medicare, Medicaid, all that stuff. And there's lots of payouts as, uh, from that perspective as well, where I think they're going to run negative account balances on that side which is also inflationary. So I think they're kind of screwed either way they go, depending on how long they do it. If they hold interest rates too high, I think inflation will come from, we'll call it the baby boomers getting all of these payouts. And then if they lower interest rates, it increases the affordability on the homes, which then you get the inflation from the millennials waiting there ready to buy. So it's kind of this weird dynamic here where I think commodities win either direction they go and with commodities kind of looking at it there are some massive shortages out in the future so when we looked at the 1970s
1: let's say because i want to get some of the audience but i think because i think this is a very good i I like the way that you you frame that right because like i've joked about that before the feds gonna have to restart qe just have to deal with the interest expense on the rollover debt of of government debt right on higher (laughs) rates i mean it's kind of the the catch-22 we're in all right so so let's continue with that point so because I named the space based on your suggestion, you know, finding value. And you know, commodities are are interesting from the perspective of figuring out what the value of a commodity is. I mean, it's ultimately what somebody's willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's based on PE or anything like that. So let's first talk process. When you go about your analytical framework, you know, what what helps you determine a commodity as being undervalued versus overvalued?
2: Yeah. So I approach the markets, I call it a three-pillar approach. I use uh, ratios, which is an asset priced against an asset compared to history. I use technical analysis, and then I use market conditions. Market conditions are, think of it as simple as, how much is, is water worth? And then you say, well, it's worth nothing if you're sitting there next to a water fountain and it's free. Uh, but if you're in the middle of a desert it's gonna, and, you're, and you're starving of thirst, well, then it's worth everything. So the market conditions is what prices assets, and then the ratios tell us where the money is and isn't in the market. And then technical analysis is an unbiased viewpoint to evaluate if the money's rotating or not. So when I when I look at this, in the mid-2000s, late, mid to late-2000s, when we went through that recession, that recession screwed a bunch of things up. And it, it, it like destroyed something. So it destroyed the housing market and the new housing starts for a very long period of time. That put us in a very unbalanced real estate market because we underbuilt for many years in the 2010s. Another thing it did is they, they printed a bunch of money. They recapitalized the banks uh, in the 2010s, you know, 2009, 2008, 2009, 2010, and all that money flooded into... The, we'll call it the technology companies and the S&P 500, NASDAQ, it flooded kind of all the way over there because we can see it in the ratios. And what that created, this whole kind of market condition dynamic, is it created a scenario where basically all the money flooded to these financial assets, bonds, stocks, uh, technology stocks, even in Bitcoin and all that stuff, and it flooded away from commodities. And commodities, if you were to look at the ratio of, say, commodity versus anything, uh, but commodity to stocks ratio, it went to 100-year lows. That was 2019, 2020, 2018, all in that kind of era. Commodities were uber cheap. Now, just because something's cheap doesn't mean that money's going to rotate into that sector and make it expensive. Something has to trigger it. So market conditions is what triggers money flows. And and the market conditions, when you look at the real estate market or business cycle, real estate cycle and business cycle are interchangeable. When you come into an expansionary phase, that's your inflation. That's what kicks the inflation on. And when you get that inflation to kick on, it rotates money differently because interest rates chase that inflation higher. And interest rates are more or less, you know, stocks are a derivative of interest rates. You could say almost everything's a derivative of interest rates. But really, the demographics, the driver interacting with the real estate market. And as you get those home starts to come up, you get that credit expansion. That's inflation. Interest rates get dragged up with it. And that's when money starts to rotate differently. Because the bondholders are saying, I can't make money in this type of environment with an increasing interest rate environment because they're selling bonds, they're losing money. Same thing happens with the stock market. They're losing money. They're saying, I'm out. I don't want this in an increasing interest rate environment. It also has an impact on crypto and and some of those other ones. And I didn't know how crypto would necessarily react to this. And it looks like crypto is more or less just a leverage play to the NASDAQ. So they also like. We'll say loose monetary conditions. So, what I see going out there, and you can kind of see this in the 1970s, it happened in the 1970s as well, is when this money comes into the system, that credit expansion, that inflation comes into the system, puts everything into a kind of a real negative rates for bonds and all that, money starts to flow differently. And if there's any type of, we'll call it restrictions on the GDP side, things can go quite nasty in terms of inflation. We measure inflation through the consumer price index and that's a measurement of the price of goods and real estate and all those things. So what I'm looking at today and I'll just go back to the 70s real quick, we had peak oil in the United States in 1970. And what happened to oil prices and and what happened to gold and silver precious metals? Well, they went up they went up ballistically because what happened was you had a large monetary credit expansion and GDP was constrained to some degree through the price of oil. And what I think is coming up over, I'll say, the next decade, and it, we've, we're already in the middle of it, I would say, a couple of years into it, is we could see a gigantic constriction on the GDP side. So GDP can't necessarily grow because of commodity constraints, because of oil potential oil constraints. And then you've got the credit side, which wants to grow. So the the Federal Reserve is seeing this. They're saying, we've got a millennial home buying group coming. We need to basically hold that demand down, raise the interest rates to an unaffordable level to kind of lock that in place there. But I don't know what they can do on the supply side. And there's many different commodities that have, I'll say, very restricted or I should say they're kind of already tapped out already, and and there's a there's a bunch. So it's it's going to be rough for GDP to grow. And if you get that imbalance between the credit expansion and GDP, there's your inflation. by, by the way, that that that's an interesting um, way of framing it,
1: and that would probably argue that that's more. You're talking about developed market, non-commodity intensive, uh, in of exporting countries as opposed to emerging markets which tend to be broadly more commodity exporting where their GDP would
2: benefit actually against the developed side. Oh oh yeah. So emerging markets I think are going to do incredibly well. Now, if you were to look at where we are kind of if you were to look at like the 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 DXY, which is a relative strength indicator, I, I call it, <laughs> um, it's just the the strength of the dollar versus other currencies. If you generally speaking, what happens is we kind of go and we raise our interest rates on up we being the dollar, America, we were were increasing our monetary tightness and the dollar got stronger against other currencies. And generally what happens is we kind of run out of steam, we hit some sort of level where we're not gonna tighten monetary conditions anymore, and then other countries start to tighten their monetary conditions. And when we start to tighten monetary conditions, we're literally just exporting inflation either to another country. <laughs> and they're going to do the same thing back to us, depending on who does what and when. So I think I think the DXY, and, and I try not to make market predictions. I just kind of read the markets. But, but the DXY raised up, you know, it got stronger, stronger, stronger. And it's kind of peaked out and it's kind of coming back down, much like 2002 in that time frame. 2002 was the last commodity bull market, kind of the beginning of it. And we're also seeing, I'll say, increased strength across the markets right now. If you look at the technical analysis, you kind of break out that pillar. The overall markets are looking pretty strong. The S&P 500, the NASDAQ, you can see Ethereum and Bitcoin are firming up. I'm not saying that these are necessary bottoms, but they're firming up to potentially go higher. We're seeing commodities across the board look very good. We're seeing lumber. I know you like to use that one. Um, That's strengthening. It's coming off of a falling wedge, starting to move higher. And we're just seeing strength across the board. So perhaps monetary conditions are not going to be as tight going forward. That's kind of my my outlook. And I think emerging markets are going to do incredibly well if the DXY starts to roll over and heads lower and kind of we get a commodity surge. And, and dollar weakness in terms of, of our currency weaker than others. So, yeah, I agree. We'll be back after
3: a quick break. Yeah, and, it's, and I've
1: used that line, and apparently few understand what I meant by it, when I said the death of QE is the rebirth of emerging markets. Speaking about the currency side, you know, in the absence of zero interest rate policy and QE squashing left side tail risk, which is what effectively that did for it, the S&P 500, that you can argue maybe kept the dollar artificially high or higher on average than it should have been. So now you don't have that dynamic as international flows maybe start to reverse out of the u.s they're going to try and find a home somewhere else valuations in emerging markets haven't mattered for a decade but they don't matter until they finally do right so this this is for me a major theme i think we are myself i'm, I'm in agreement with you in a in a multi-year cycle where finally emerging markets are the place to be just like it was coming out of the tech wreck from 2000 up until the, the gfc yes Right and and it's in line with commodities. I mean, it's I it's, made that point before. I mean, if you can't be a believer in energy over tech, unless you're a believer in value over growth, unless you're a believer in emerging over domestic, it's all the same trade.
2: Yes, it is definitely. It's all the same trade. One hundred percent agree. When you
1: when you go about um, your commodity analysis, and then you're you're trading yourself, are you doing it on the on the future side? Are you doing ETFs? I'm curious what's the the vehicle because you know commodities, as you know, can be tricky. Maybe for sort of the the average investor to actually get proper exposure to
2: yeah so you can use etfs but i what what i really do is i use the the uh, companies themselves and i go into individual companies and i i take out my my technical analysis hat and i look at the sectors of which commodities are incredibly low generally it's the ones that are below the cost curves so you've got your cost curves let's just say uranium for example i'm big uranium bull Uranium was trading at like $20, $30 a couple of years ago. The cost curve or the cost to really turn on new mines, uh, that's, that's $50, 60 70 and it continues to increase. It could be $90 or $100 now to really turn on enough mines for the demand that's out there. Uh, so what I do is I look at the cost curves. I say, okay, this is cheap. I look at the ratios and uranium to gold was off the charts cheap. I mean, it's, it's, it was laughable how cheap this was in 2020. And I I looked at uranium and went into some of the uranium uh, mining companies. Now, the tough thing about uranium is you don't really have any producers in that sector. So I'm just using uranium as an example. Um, that's kind of how I play it is the producers uh, and or some of the companies. I also use technical analysis. And when you look at the the charts, the charts are more or less, you know, think of it like like your hand, right? And I know this is kind of a weird analogy, but your hand has genetics. It made your hand. And generally, you know, generally speaking, bigger palms have bigger fingers. I'm just making this up, but it's the genetics that determines the size of the moves. So when you look at a stock and you look at the volatility of a stock and you look at some of the patterns, the size of those patterns or the fractals And the Fibonacci sequences and all that stuff, the size of those moves can potentially give you the size of what's coming in the future for potential returns. So, I I do a lot of kind of analysis on the technical side, and then I later on dive into the fundamentals of the company if I think something looks really good. So, I kind of screen everything from a technical analysis basis using fractals and, and patterns and stuff, and then I dive into the fundamentals next. To ensure that the technicals match the fundamentals, which most of the part they do, and and vice versa, and that I'm actually reading it correctly. So the sectors that I think that just look absolutely ridiculously good, at least from a 2020 on perspective, uh, the energy sector looks ridiculously good. Oil, energy service companies, uranium. Uh, I can't th- I can't find anything that I don't really like in the energy energy arena. For commodities. Uh, They are also the most inflation sensitive. If you were to look back and you were to do a ratio analysis and and kind of what the potential returns could be using how cheap those assets got against other assets, energy was off, it was it was off the scale cheap in 2020. It's still cheap today, but it's not as cheap as it was in, in 2020. But the biggest returns, I think, in the markets. Uh, were, were energy-related investments uh, in 2020. Now, I also think uh, precious metals, I think they could also do incredibly well. As witnessed in the 1970s, we had this demographic coming to home by years, you know, yada, yada with that. And we had a constraint in energy. And it was only constrained in America. We could grow and, and, and gain energy somewhere else in the world. We have the same dynamic as the 1970s demographic and all that stuff, coming into home buying years, credit expansion. But now, on the energy side, we could be constrained worldwide. So now, if, if we have a system that must grow because of the debt in the system, it must expand, but your GDP is somewhat constrained, you've got that mismatch between we'll call it credit expansion or money creation at a faster pace than your GDP can grow because it's energy constrained. And if that's the case, what people do is they generally run towards precious metals, gold, silver, whatever it is. And and that's kind of what we saw in the 1970s. Except this time, and I'm not trying to say this time's different, I hate those, you know, using those words. If you were to look at some other charts, like the producer price index, divided by the consumer price index. And you were to look at that, you've seen a decline all the way since that they started charting that 1940s, 1920s. It's been declining all the way till about 2000. So we had this, we'll call it technology in, in the industry. We were producing goods and services more efficiently over that entire time frame. We hit a bottom in 2000 and it sharply reversed in that bull market of 2000 to 2008. We came back down from 08 in that disinflationary period all the way till 2020, put in a massive double bottom. And now the producer price index is outperforming the consumer price index, and we're, we're putting in a gigantic double bottom. The thing that kind of scares me a little bit is that we could see a vast outperformance of the producer price index in relationship to the consumer price index that we haven't seen, I think, in anyone's life.
1: Which, by the way, is counter to the the, the existing concerns around sticky services inflation.
2: Yes, yes. Well, I guess what I would say is um, perhaps the market, and I don't know the ne- the necessary reason. You could look at it from two perspectives, I think. You could look at it where it's the money that's going to outpace the the commodities. Or you could look at it as maybe the market is pricing in commodity constraints that are just massive. And I and I think we have both of those things going on. I just don't know what narrative to put to it. But if we see this outperformance, it's going to make the 1970s look... I think this could be more explosive than even the 1970s. I'll just put it that way. If that chart, if I'm reading everything right, and, and that could... And that's put in a double bottom, which it is. It's like wow, this is this is a game changer because no one's has no one has seen this in their lifetime.
1: By the way, that is consistent with other intermarket out ratios. I mean, if you just do the S and P against commodities, yep, right. I mean, yep. th- that that topping and then the inverse, obviously, the bottom of commodities against equities. You can see there's enormous relative catch up potential, just like you can see with emerging markets, just like you can see with value and growth. I keep going back to it's all the same trade you mentioned gold um i think most people when they think about a commodity super cycle they want to get more exposure to the industrial commodity side industrial metal side how do you think about sort of the the industrial metals versus the the precious metals like gold i mean is there is there a strong case for one over the other or do you just get
2: exposure to both so this is a game about energy i think and if you were to look at all this stuff i mean Commodities or, or or metals in your hand is is more or less just a derivative of energy, which you've got Earth between you and 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 whatever metal, and energy is the thing that that digs it out of the Earth, refines it, gets it all you know, takes it out of the Earth and puts it in your hand, so to speak. What I think the way that I'm kind of trying to put my head around right now is. What's going to be valuable if your energy costs go up dramatically in relationship to what we're used to? And remember, that's the market condition. So we're coming from a plentiful world of energy looking backwards. What does this world look like going forward if it's a very expensive energy world? And I think assets will be priced differently based off of the cost of energy. And I think industries will have to change because we, we've basically, our, our economy has grown up with, with cheap energy inputs. And I don't know necessarily what that's going to look like with expensive energy inputs. So when I look at this, as you, you look at the base metals, the base metals, their ore grades are declining and declining over time. And as they decline, your energy intensity to get it out of the ground increases. So I think metals themselves, if you own the physical commodity, like the physical metal, I think will do incredibly well because you've got basically the least risk possible uh, with a bunch of upside because the market conditions of higher energy prices will carry the cost curves higher, pushing those metals to a higher level. So I I think the, the least risk way, the most direct way to play it, without any type of nationalization or whatever else, taxes, increased taxes on the companies, is the physical metals, which is precious metals related. It also protects you against, we'll call it energy constraints. If there's an energy constraint for some period of time, and then you've got all this debt in the system, it also protects you from that. So I'm a big proponent of physical metals. um, If you want to protect your wealth, I think that's a a smart way to do it. If you want to grow your wealth, I think there's other precious metals that you can look at, something like platinum, that is very cheap in relationship to other precious metals or other metals in general. But I also think base metals are going to go up. I just don't know of a really great way to play it. I do like the companies, diversified mining companies. I think they'll do well, but remember, their margins may not go up as much if Energy is constrained.
1: And by the way, but that's, that's probably that's an important point because I, I made that and I've done those back tests myself. So I had tried to do a a variation of a lot of different back tests where you you use gold as a leading indicator for the miners, and gold is not really explanatory of the miners' performance. To your point, it's more about energy. It's not as, as tight of a link.
2: Yeah, yeah. So the, the cost curves are so a lot of these companies, they're I'll say the mining companies. So a lot of the mining companies, some of their most we'll say their highest input costs is energy. So it's maybe 50 or 60% of their, their input costs in some of these companies. And if energy gets really constrained, but it's not just energy though, because your risk can also increase if other commodities become short as well. So we've got this very complex world. I'm in manufacturing. That's kind of the viewpoint that I look at. And we put these thousands of different components together to produce a product. The problem is, what if you're short just one or two of those products, you know, that goes into it or one or two of those inputs to produce that product? You basically can't sell it because you're short it. So if you look and you look around at some of these energy service companies, you look around at some of these industries, we've seen those shortages happen. And what happens is you can't build the product. It gets stuck. So when, when you kind of sit back and you really look at it and dig into it. You're going, okay. I have to be in the in the products or the things that are going to be the most short because everything else will be in a surplus because the shortage will hold everything else up. So it's real hard to to kind of figure out where those shortages are necessarily going to be and which ones will definitely be the shortage. But there's I mean, you look at nickel, you look at copper, you look at zinc, you look at aluminum. You start looking at all these different things. You're saying, Crap, "Man, it, these things could be—they're they, going to be running massive deficits starting about 2023, 2024, and 2025." And some of these, I don't know if they're necessarily solvable in a short-term time frame. So I think we'll be short for a while in them. And I think we could have price spikes or whatever. And I don't think they'll stay up. You know, these price spikes won't last forever, but they will cause havoc i think on companies and you know overall if you if you think of a company a company all they do it's just a it's just a it's a tax shield is the company the name itself and then they just fling commodities through it to create products using energy i mean that that's like the simplest explanation i can i can i can think of of a company the problem is when you get short energy or you're short a few commodities and that's when problems arise in some of the companies, and I think that's potentially what could be coming, or they're just going to fight for the the commodities that they need, and the prices for those are going to go up quite dramatically. It's just which one's going to be it and if i were if I were to take guesses, I think aluminum that's a very energy intensive process. They're shutting down smelters in europe I, I think there's some arbitrage plays perhaps in aluminum, you know playing it with America because we've got cheap natural gas over here. Copper, I don't think it's going to be as short, but zinc could be. I mean, there's there's just commodities. You look at it and you're like, man, these things are running on fumes in terms of inventory levels. And I just don't see any path to really fix it in the next couple of years. We
1: haven't touched on the soft commodity side, kind of the the agriculture side. I, I have a good relationship with the folks at Tucrium. Uh, I do a number of spaces with them. I'm curious to hear your take on, on that side of things. Um, soybeans, for example, have been, for lack like of a better way of saying it, on fire in terms of their movement. But uh, do you do any analysis on on that side of things?
2: Well, I mean, I don't do it as much because I don't know if the potential is as good over there. And the reason I say that is you can you can switch crops. You can kind of move those things, I think, quicker than you can a uranium mine or a copper mine. So I think there's going to be, I, I think they can adjust more quickly with the soft commodities, and, and maybe I'm wrong here because I, I don't I, I have I don't really studied the soft commodity side as much. But the metals the metals side, I mean, they're it's it's really hard to get a mind going, and uranium as well. And when we see that shortage and people pile in, I just don't know if there's going to be any supply response for a long time. So that that's kind of where I'm focused is where do I see opportunities where you've got a you got a massive deficit and the supply response is basically non-existent for 5 to 10 years. So you mentioned that you're you're playing on the on the equity side some of these ideas. Um,
1: mm-hmm. Do you do you pay attention to sort of the geographic revenue mix? Are there certain parts of the globe that just given your analysis look you know more
2: interesting to focus on than others? Well, I mean some of these deposits are, they're just found in certain locations or jurisdictions uh, and not so much in other ones. And what, what happens, what ends up happening is you you basically look at a certain country and there's positive, positives and negatives about it. And I don't even know how positive Canada or America is anymore because they're pretty anti-commodities already. And, and that makes it even a stronger bull case. So when I look at this, I'm conflicted on exactly what I think is good and what I think is bad. You think if oil goes to $250 a barrel or something like that, do you think the current administration's not going to tax them to death in America? I would probably guess they might. So I'm looking at this going, man, I, there is still a lot of risk wherever you go. But uh, uranium-wise, I think you know Namibia and Africa, I, I view that as positive. I think it's pretty good. And there's some areas there that I think some, some deposits that look all right. I, I do view America still as a cat, you know, a capitalistic country. So I, I view it a little bit better. I view Canada a little bit better. So yeah, I do look at it, but it's not. It, it, even if something's in a, a jurisdiction that people may avoid, I still will allocate some money to it. and I just may not allocate as much. So that's kind of the jurisdiction side of it. Get uh, more question. Good. Yeah. So. What's difficult, like let's look at rare earth metals, and the processing of rare earth metals. It's ninety nine percent in China, and it's like, well, if I want exposure to it, (laughs) there's there's not much else you can really do, at least from that perspective. But yeah, putting a premium on it, you know, I I don't, I guess I'll say I, I I handle my risk through the position size that I allocate to whatever jurisdiction or whatever I'll say position that I've got. So I do that all through the position size. And I really don't like, I know you brought up China, for example. I really don't like that because I'll I'll just, I'll step back real quick. I think if resources get really constrained that we could potentially go to war. Now that may change your viewpoint because it's like, well, if we're going to go to war, what's allies with America versus what's allies with Russia or China or wherever. So I really don't, Put much allocation to where I think I could forfeit a position, which I have forfeited positions already to Russia, because I was in Norilsk Nickel and some of these other ones. So I've really pulled back on any allocation to, let's say, China or Russia or any any of those types of investments, and I've I've really diverted it towards kind of neutral countries and ones that are located in. we'll say North America. I don't have to, South America is a really difficult one. And I don't know really how to look at it because it seems like it's highly dependent on the presidents that are there. And and some of those presidents are vastly different from one another. So you could have some guys that are really, I will say anti-capitalist, and we've got ones that are pretty pro-capitalist. So it's hard to say that this country or that country, because if their management or, or leadership changes, that could change with it very quickly. So as I kind of look at all this and just, and I kind of absorb it all, that's where I went with the precious metals. <laughs> it's like, get the physical, get out of the system because it's the lowest risk way to play it. And I think there's a bunch of upside potential. So when you look at it from a risk reward standpoint, it sucks all the risk out of it. And it get, still gives you very good rewards under these market conditions of we'll say credit expansion versus Versus GDP and commodity constraints. So I I keep going back to the physical metals and saying, wow, this is a really a really good way to play it. You start looking at the companies, the your risks go up dramatically. And I don't really put like a specific premium or anything like that on it. I kind of just look at the chart, look at the risk reward. And if the rewards are worth the risk taking, let's say it's it's got 20, 30, 40, 50 times upside to whatever risk you're going to do. I'll, I'll allocate something to it. But you know I, I, don't, I don't really look at companies and put like a risk premium, you know this, this country versus this country versus this country. I don't, that's not kind of how I approach it. I've got the ones that I just won't enter at all. And then I've got these other ones. It's like, okay, I know it's in a ris- risky jurisdiction, but the upside potential is so great. I'll put a little bit into it. That's kind of how I do it. It's off the cuff. There's no mathematical oh, yeah. thing. <laughs>
1: yeah. And by the way, just for everybody, please make sure you follow Andy and, and check out his YouTube channel as well. He's got a, a number of great videos that he does. Again, this will be a podcast. Maybe just for the last few minutes here, Andy, since you mentioned China, um, any kind of comparison to the last commodity cycle, you'd be remiss if you didn't mention the super cycle aspect of it, which was because of everything China was doing on the infrastructure side. And I've seen all the stats, like everybody else, there's a tremendous amount of infrastructure that needs to still be, Built out, refreshed, rebuilt. Maybe this is a strange question, but do you think it's a cycle or a super cycle for commodities uh, that's akin to what we saw during that period with China's support?
2: Well, I think you're going to get China's support because they basically went through their property. They, they, they had a property crash here recently, and they're re reinflating that that market. They're, they're doing stimulus. They're reopening up. Uh, I think we're going to get all the support we need from them because they're the ones that are basically converting those commodities into usable products. And I think it's going to be a super cycle, not because of demand driven, but because of supply constraints. And I I don't know what it will necessarily look like, but I think the world, India, China, uh, some of these powers that are out there, they're in the middle of their S-curves in terms of their consumption of, of energy. And you could probably say commodities as well. Uh, And I think they're going to be the drivers of it. So yeah, I think it's going to be a super cycle. I think it's going to be supply constrained. And I think that India and China and and the Eastern world is going to be the one driving it.
1: I think that's a good place to wrap this space up. Everybody, again, please make sure you follow Andrew Hosey here on Twitter, on YouTube. Certainly appreciate the contributing question there. But thank you, Andy. uh, It was a pleasure listening to you. There's a lot of things that you were saying that In a different way, uh, line up with my own thesis on where we are in the cycle. So, uh, with that said, thank everybody for joining, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you.
3: The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.